You're listening to DraftKings Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I just woke up from having a dream that MJ, Michael Jordan, was on Basketball Illuminati. We were shooting the shit back and forth. Great vibes. Epic. Classic podcast. And right when I asked him, hey, MJ, why'd you walk away from the game? Was it really to play baseball? Were you suspended for gambling? My ass would wake up to use the bathroom right before hearing his answer. (sighs) Happens all the time. Never get to the end. Anyways, felt real as hell. Well, good morning, everybody. Yo, that's so crazy. Like, you had that dream? Because I just woke up from a dream where I was sitting there talking about the 2014 NBA Finals. Game one would pop. It was unbelievable. We were going back through history and talking about the greatest finals performances. And he was about to tell me who had truly the greatest finals performance ever. And he was going to reveal what happened with the AC game, game one, where LeBron was cramping. And of course... At that exact moment, I got bubble guts and I had to go to the bathroom right before Pop was going to reveal what really happened in 2014. This happens all the time, right before I get the big reveal and we never get to the end of it. Anyway, it felt real as hell and good morning. That's a bizarre, bizarre coincidence because I had a dream last night that I was visited by the force ghost of David Stern and I asked him, hey man. That 85 lottery, what really happened right there? Was it rigged? What's with the Ernst and Young connections? What's with this quote from my man from Madison Square Garden? And he opened his mouth and he was about to speak. And that's when I felt the incredible urge to take a leak. But I wasn't going to miss this answer. So I peed on myself in my dream and in real life, but did not wake up. You know what happened? David's turn laughed. And pointing at me, said, pee pants, before becoming one with the force again. And then I woke up. Good morning. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball
is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by my five-star generals, Amin Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. We've got lots of show to get into later in the program. We are going to have a truth-teller guest talk about load management and injuries in today's NBA, a sports scientist who used to work with the San Antonio Spurs and the Philadelphia 76ers. We're going to be joined by Lorena Torres, who is joining us at an undisclosed location in Spain on a secure line. We will be talking with Lorena shortly. And also, I did some of my own research regarding Nikola Jokic and his career and some of the chatter out there about MVPs and stat padding and whether he should be winning a title this year and what that says about him. But first, bing bong. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El Hassan. Fresh out the garden, baby. Taking it all the way. Is there anything that's better than the Knicks tape? The Bing Bong Knicks tape. I mean, is there anything better NBA content-wise besides this show? Double shit overtime. What the baby? New York is getting back. Knicks are here, baby. The Knicks are here, baby. Fresh out the garden, baby. We're taking it all the way. We had De Blasio, we had Cuomo. It was rough shit, but we have the Knicks. Run New York, Knicks. Run New York City. Bing Bong. Tell me a little something, KD. Don't you regret not coming to the Knicks? Don't you regret not coming to the Knicks? Let's go Knicks! Let's go Knicks! Let's go Knicks! Let's go Knicks! Real talk, I'm from New York, and you know what? Tom Brady's a f***ing bitch! Tom Brady, huh? Tom Brady! Where the bread at, Tom Brady? I need some bread! Boston! Yo, you thought Trey Young was still good? He still ain't good at Dyke, man! You smoking on that Boston pack tonight, you right? Trey Young! For reference, I am in a group chat with some friends and family members, many of whom are from New York, and it is basically the living incarnation of this. Because half the chat hates the Knicks and half the chat loves the Knicks, and it's just this insane, insane place. And we had like a little Knicks-Nets rivalry, and I'm telling you, it's the biggest film noir in the history of this group chat. Where we were in December... When the Nets were winning a million games in a row, I just looked, oh, maybe they're going to pull this off, right? And the Knicks were mired in mediocrity. And what's happened since, it's literally like the Goths and the Visigoths sacking Rome. Just running around <laughs> with bearskins on them, lighting things on fire, and the Romans are shell-shocked. What's happening here? But look, man, there's nothing to be said. It's real. Every bit of it is real. And I don't know if you guys saw this. John Schumann posted this before Knicks Celtics, a breakdown of the win-loss record of the top five teams in the East against each other. So that's Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Cleveland, New York. When you listen to conversations out in the media Mm. about the Eastern Conference. The mainstream media. The mainstream, the lamestream media. Everyone is so insistent. Oh, Boston and Milwaukee are the cream of the crop. Boston and Milwaukee. Oh, they're so much better. It's Boston and Milwaukee and then everybody else. If they're being really gracious, they might throw Philly into their own second tier. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then everybody else. Maybe there's a third tier with Cleveland 
and perhaps New York, and then everybody else. Boston and Milwaukee, they're so good, and one of them's going to be in the finals. And I'm not saying that one of them will or will not be in the finals. What I am saying is that John Schumann, again, prior to Boston playing New York the other day, and obviously Cleveland on Monday, came up with this. Milwaukee has the best record against the other four teams at 7-5, and five, but their margin of victory is plus 0.6. Second best is Boston, which is 6-5, and five, with an average margin of victory of 2.3. Third, Cleveland at 6-6, six and six, with an average margin of victory of 1.5. New York is fourth at 6-7, and seven, minus 1.8, and Philly is fifth at 5-7, and seven, minus 2.3. So as you can see, they're all roughly 500 against one another, and the highest spread is 2.3 points per game 23 yeah this is not the picture that lamestream media wants you to believe they want you to believe that there's this massive gap but the reality is the gap is not built on beating other good teams the gap is built beating all the shitty teams it don't matter so i ask you guys is it that far-fetched to say the knicks could beat either Boston or Milwaukee in a seven-game series. Is there a non-zero chance that they do? Yeah, I think so. A lot would have to go right for that to happen. But, man, look at the past week. I mean, look at the past couple of weeks. They won nine games in a row. The last week, we had Boston on Monday, W. Wednesday, two days later, they put the smack down on the borough rivals, the Brooklyn Nets, 142 to 118. The Goths and the Visigoths running amok in Brooklyn. Day off, day on Friday. They go down to South Beach, Miami downtown. Julius Randle loses the ball on the sideline, falling out of bounds. Boom! Or should I say, bang! Bang! Double bang! It's so painful for Mike Breen to say bang. Bang! Bang! You want to hear something crazy? Something truly remarkable. My voice is gone. It's toast. Doc Rivers now. I would love to hear something remarkable. I mean. Do you know who has the best road record in the NBA? It's not John Morant. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, it's the goddamn New York Knicks. Wow. Best in the league. Not in their division. Not in their conference. Not over the last couple of months. No caveats here. This season, number one road record, New York 20 and 12, Boston 20 and 12. I love it. You know what? After what we've seen, how the product, the NBA product and respect to the game has been watered down over the last few weeks, whether it's a load management conversation, whether it's all-star, here's Julius Randle wanting to participate in every all-star event. He's even in the three-point contest, I mean, Mays. He's a gamer. He respects the brand. He respects the product. And in the NBA, when everyone's talking about load management, who are the guys who are playing every minute of every game? It's Emmanuel quickly. What do you play? 55 minutes? Rested for three minutes in that double overtime game. What are you, Tom? The minutes police? Dum, dun, dun, dun. Dum, dun, dun, tom, tom. And then you got... Tom Thibodeau here, who seems like he's a coach of a prehistoric era. He's got this new look. He's got the beard this season. He's looking sharp. Is he looking sharp? He's also playing much different than what we expect him to do. Do you know that the New York Knicks 
are both top 10 in free throws and three pointers. Who is this? Maury Ball? This guy who gets killed for this joyless basketball, only about defense. Well, this is a top five, top 10 offense this season. They're better on offense than they are on defense. Tom Thibodeau, who are you? Who is this bearded man? I talked to Fred Katz this weekend, and Fred Katz told me, and I kind of knew this already, that Tibbs bristles at the insinuation that he's a defense coach. He sees himself as an all-around coach. All he's trying to do is win games. He doesn't give a shit if it's through the offense or defense. He's trying to win games because, well, I'll let him tell it. You celebrate your team. You celebrate winning. Those are the things that you celebrate. I want them. I want our, our team to have fun. I want them to have joy. But I want. I don't want it to get lost, and I don't want to get want it to get twisted. Uh, winning is way more fun than fun is fun. So. Make sure we're taking care of business. More fun <laughs> than fun. That is a f***ing all-time line. Let me tell you right now, just like Michael Ray Richardson saying the ship be sinking, Moses Malone saying fo fo fo, Brandon Jennings saying bucks and six, Tim Hardaway Sr., nip and tuck, calling Dick Pavetta, Nick Pavetta. KG, anything is possible. Is there a better line for the NBA marketing than this? Come on. Allen Iverson, we're not talking about a game. We're talking about practice. Rudy Tomjanovich, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. Shaq, can you dig it? All of these great lines from NBA history just got a new roommate. It's Tom Thibodeau's winning is more fun than fun is fun. <laughs> He's not the only one with a hell of a quote because we do have to get to the Illuminations foremost researcher, Julius Randall. Oh, yeah. Who said in reference to load management, I understand the science and all that different stuff behind it, but I guess I have my own science. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Speaking of doing your own research, Tom. Wow. Took it to another level. He's doing his own science. Julius Randle's science is play the damn game. You know what, man? I shitted on Julius Randle for being part of the three-point contest. I still think it's an abomination that the league didn't bring Damian Lee in to participate in it. An abomination. An abomination. It's an hour flight. Send the kid there, man. He was number one for most of the year in three-point shooting. But... I've come 180 on Julius Randle. You know what, man? In this season where I'm become terrified that guys just don't like playing basketball in general, I'm glad there's someone who wants to play. Wants to play the games, wants to play in the All-Star game, wants to do the three-point shootout, wants to participate in this thing that every single one of us, presumably, grew up watching and loving and idolizing and visualizing ourselves in, right? He's kept that enthusiasm he drives me crazy when i watch him play the other day i'm watching celtics knicks with my dad and all he could hear was just <laughs> the sounds of disappointment <laughs> <laughs> every time julius randall would do something ridiculous like oh i don't know turn his head and assume what there's no double team coming this time but for all of his flaws for all of the maddening things that he does Guess what? The mother likes to play basketball. Loves it. My new platform is, I love this game. Do you? <laughs> you pointed at us in the Zoom here. Yep. <laughs> Very accusatory. Yes. I love this game. Do you? Loving the game is more fun than fun is fun. I look at Julius Randle. I don't think he's missed the game this season. And I'm like, man, how much longer can they keep this up? 
they ball out, man. They play hard. This is exactly the prototype of a Knicks team that they love is that they play so hard. The win against Boston, Jalen Brunson didn't even play. Yep. They went up and beat their ass. Yep. Next man up, all that tough guy mentality that we like to kind of roast just how corny it is sometimes to hear about that. We've never needed it more, Tom. We've never needed it more. Winning is more fun than fun is fun. And that, my friends, is how you do it, how you market the game. Tom Thibodeau, Julius Randle, Emmanuel Quickly. They got Hort, Tom. Josh Hort and Isaiah Hortenstein. That whole organization. Oh, man. Are they still owned by James Dolan? Shh, don't ruin. Shh. Don't bring down the vibe. Don't wake him. Ah! Come on, man. Don't wake him up. Everything's been great while Papa Dolan's been snoozing away, not creating controversy by facial recognizing people he doesn't like in the stands. Let's keep that all on the hush for now. Fine, fine. We have our own science. We need to talk about the science. I'm upset that we didn't ask Lorena this question about Julius Randle and the science. We don't even need to do any research on Julius Randle's science and what that means. We know the science is just a W. There you go. It's all about winning. Put that in your stat. But for those outside of New York and those outside of Julius Randle's orbit, we need to talk about load management the injury rates in the league. LeBron James, did he play too much upon his return from his foot injury and re-aggravated something? I mean, apparently he had heard it earlier in the season. We're going to talk about all that with our next truth teller. Her name is Lorena Torres. She was a sports scientist with both the San Antonio Spurs and following that with the Philadelphia 76ers. And she was on the sports science committee at the NBA. And now she works at You First, a player agency based in Spain. I can't wait for you guys to hear what Lorena has to say about the NBA in general, the NBA as a sport and how the velocity and the intensity of the sport is different than other sports and just the season in general, what it all means from a sports science perspective coming right up. Lorena Torres. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you what do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keep some up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Can't wait for you guys to meet Lorena Torres, who is our truth teller this week. Well, you're no longer in the NBA. You were with the Spurs for a few years, the San Antonio Spurs. You were at the Philadelphia 76ers. 
But now you're at the U First agency representation of pro athletes around the world. And I think that's kind of where this whole industry is going is the rise of importance to have sports science or to have the sports medicine side, strength and performance underneath a talent agency as opposed to the team side. So can you explain how you arrived here in this new position now at U First? I don't think a position like mine is replacing what the teams have, like the medicine and performance stuff in the teams. They are very important, or I like to believe that we were important in the team. The only thing is that when you are with a team, sometimes get to the individual needs in detail. It's hard because you have the time that you have, the roster that you have. So when I came back to Spain, I was thinking, okay, what can I do that I really feel fulfillment and I still can help pro athletes, pro players. I work with football or soccer players for you guys and basketball players. And I presented this project to the agency to see, okay, I think this is the future, as you said, giving support to players outside the team, but working with the team if we have to, collaborating with the teams, coordinating things. So first, I don't think it's compatible. I also think like you is where the industry is going especially in sports that they have big rosters like NFL or soccer. It's impossible that two or three or four strength coaches cover what every player needs. Marina, how much resistance do you find either from teams or from individual athletes towards your findings? I find resistance from the teams, but I also think the teams are becoming aware that it's happening. And also it depends on where it's coming from. I don't want to give names, but if you have a big game, a big guy in the team, like the superstar or the franchise guy, Mm -hmm. if they come and they say, I want this, 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 and that, they're having it. Like, there's no question. And now the young guys or older guys in the team, they say, okay, you have all the resources. I don't have all the attention that I need, or it's not even about attention. It's, I want a specialist for this. So that's how I see it. You have really good people, like really smart people in the staff, but not everybody knows everything. So when I didn't know how to approach a mental situation with a player, I didn't try to give answers only with the staff on my team. So who is the best in the world doing this? Who can help you in the world to overcome this situation? Let's look for that. Now I'm in the other side and I'm trying to give them, okay, how can we give answers and support to your need? Yeah, because I mean, I've been following your work for years. I think actually you were at the same presentation, I think at- Austin, I remember that. Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest. There was a presentation there and you had some really great questions for the presenter. I forget the actual presentation, but I was just kind of like, wow, you're like really interested in the research and really interested in the data. That was a huge impression for me. And then seeing that you were at the 76ers and the Spurs, some of the biggest winningest franchises in the NBA, but you deeply cared about the research. As much as we talk about the superstar athletes and their needs and wants, you're very much interested in the humble beginnings of the data. Mm, Yes and no. What I really care about is about the player. Mm -hmm. How can I help you? And then because there is so many misunderstanding information and people just doing the copy paste and we have to be fancy buying this technology. We have to be fancy doing these processes. That's what gets me like, no, why? (laughs) And then I look for the information, the data, the evidence to justify what we are doing this. 
I'm not like data driven as much as you can think. It's more about why we do things. Yeah, so I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I use science to try to give answers to questions. Lorena, so on that topic, you had a tweet last week in response to a Sham Sharani report about LeBron James' right foot injury. You said, we knew this could happen. At least they could have decreased the likelihood to happen by managing minutes progression after previous injuries. We have five years of data and the analysis is done. Can you go into a little bit more detail there about what you meant by that and what sort of analysis had been done? Yes. So me and some colleagues, we did deeply studying injuries in the NBA for the last five years. Part one is already published. And again, what I'm trying to do when I do research is why we have or why there are, because I'm not in the NBA now, why there are keep increasing the number of injuries if we have better ways of training, better resources, mm -hmm. more stuff in the organizations. What is happening? So part one is descriptive by franchise, by age, play position. We analyzed a ton of things, body part, type of injury, just a descriptive situation of the injuries in the NBA. And injuries keep going up. So part two is under review. What we did is, okay, let's see how different mechanisms are telling us if we could do things in certain way to try to reduce the likelihood of having injuries. When I say we knew this could happen, I'm not a very big fan of predictions. I didn't mean we really could know that that was going to happen. What I meant is because we know that in ankle and knee injuries, when you don't do a minute's progression after a first injury, especially after a severe injury, the likelihood of getting another injury in the same area are higher than if you do minutes progression. So what I studied was, okay, what happened with LeBron and all the players, LeBron is a big name, but how players and teams are managing certain things. And if we can find a scientific or data that can help us to improve, just to improve or rethink how we are doing things, because it's a shame. Every time that a player gets injured, I'm like, no, mm -hmm. we should do everything we can to avoid this or try to avoid this. So let me go back to something that you said, because that's something we've talked about on this podcast several times, which is, why is it? Why is it that given the increase in staff and we know more, we're fitting in more rest, we've almost eliminated back-to-backs from schedules, we've gotten rid of three games in five nights. Travel's gotten better. We've done everything we can to optimize the schedule and how we are caring for athletes. And yet the injuries seem to be much higher than 30 years ago in the 90s. And Stan Van Gundy had a tweet about this a couple of months ago. He said, well, why is it my medical staff now is 10 people, 12 people, as opposed to just a trainer and a strength coach. Back in the 90s, we had just one trainer. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And we never got injury, right? <laughs> and we never got injured. Yeah, so to the best of your knowledge, what is the explanation for that? It's a complex answer for a tricky question. It's really hard. There is a huge debate. The Players Association with the league, do we play all the games? Do we give MVP trophies to play? Like all the things. Mm -hmm. It's hard because to the best of my knowledge, and it's my opinion based on some data, it seems that the sport is more demanding from a physical point of view. Probably mentally, we don't have the data, but physically is more demanding than a few years ago. 
the distance that they run, at the speed they run, the change of directions. The game is opening because of the three. So the movements, everything seems to tell us that is a more demanding, high intensity, short actions, etc. With the schedule, yes, the back-to-backs were somehow related to injuries in some research. What I think, based on the two studies that I just mentioned, is sometimes the urgency to come back from an injury puts the player in a situation where maybe the tissues are not completely ready or not for that load. So maybe something more gradual coming back, which some teams, I follow, you know, the maintenance progressions, they do. And it's tricky to answer that because yes, the teams have more and more staff and people get injured. So should they play all the games? It's a tough schedule playing 82 games at that intensity mm-hmm. and that compromise the intensity of the game. Like you can see now the scores, 120, 130, 150 going up. I would love to see analysts analyzing what is happening with defense and the intensity and the physical exertion of defense. Then if we are questioning, should they play all the games? Okay, should they play all the games 30 plus minutes per game? Or if we want to see the players on court because of the fans and, you know, they buy that ticket that costs them so much money and they want to see their superstars on the court, should we, instead of seating them and resting them, managing the amount of minutes they play here and there? So to try to answer your question, if I would be with the team, I would try to at least control what is happening in the team rather than try to change the whole game because the game is what it is. The intensity is becoming what it is. The schedule is what it is. But what is the roster that I have and how can I keep them healthy but making them play at the highest level that they can? I'm against only resting as a management resource. How do we manage them so they can play and stay healthy and give show to the spectacle going on, you know? Lorena, but you're a sports scientist. I thought all sports scientists just advocate for rest and <laughs> skipping games because that's the stigma in America is that sports science came into the league and now all the players are resting and load managing. So can you unpack what your role is in a team as a sports scientist and how you approach the rest versus playing equation? Yeah, that's something that built us, the sports science community. When people see a sports scientist, like, okay, he's going to, or she's going to just rest the guys and don't practice and practice less and that less intensity to keep them healthy. But you need stress for the body to be able to adapt and go to a higher level of performance. So you need a stress, you need to practice, you need high intensity. What I think as sports science has to do it's something like gather data but it's not about the data it's about the information so you have to treat the data with information try to get some knowledge and use that knowledge and information to give that to people who has to make decisions so they can have the best information possible to make the best decisions because two things why I'm not only resting players? Because we have guys that play zero minutes or five minutes in games because they are young, because they are the rookies, because they are older, whatever. You need to put them in a situation in practice where they compensate all that. So it's not that they need to rest, it's that they actually have to do more and extra. So we need to give a stimulus to them. 
And the second thing is, I'm not a medical person, so I'm not the one saying this player is not playing because he has a whatever ankle sprain. I'm not that person. So I don't think I should go to a coach and say this player is not playing tonight. Mm. Because maybe that night is a super important game and he needs that win for whatever the reason. So he needs to put in a scale the risk reward of risking or not risking. Because to be honest, it's super hard to predict injuries. All those that say we can predict injuries, I would like to really know how they do it because <laughs> injuries happen. <laughs> so it's more about what can we do to try to avoid the situation? I'm curious. Obviously, you worked in the NBA. You also worked with basketball clubs in Europe. You've also worked with soccer or football players. Is there a difference in how people accept your expertise between sports? And is there a difference in between how people accept your expertise between places, meaning Europe versus United States or soccer versus basketball? Starting from the end, in Europe, there are way less resources in general in the teams. Mm -hmm. So it's a luxury to have certain positions. It's accepted, but it's hard to get to the level of detail that you can do it in the NBA. Mm -hmm. That's why the stats are bigger, I think, because of resources. And when I got in the NBA, there was that moment where the teams were hiring sports scientists. And because in the States, there wasn't the tradition that in Australia or in the UK or in Spain, they were hiring people from different places. That's okay because that brings new ways of seeing things and you can apply things coming from other sports. I'm a huge fan of diversification of knowledge. But I think you need to know the sport. And if you don't know the sport, you need to take the time to know the sport. And in the NBA, it's another sport. It's not basketball in Europe. It's a completely different sport just because of the schedule. Lorena, 170 days are roughly about in the NBA schedule, regular season. Is 82 games from a sports science standpoint, is 82 games too many? Is there a magical number of games that you would say for optimizing performance and preventing injuries? Obviously, Lorena, it would be zero games to prevent all injuries. And zero fun. <laughs> and, and zero money too. So 170 days, you're commissioner of the NBA and you know that we need some games to provide eyeballs on the national TV deals from strictly a sports science and health of the players aspect. Is 82 too many? Or where would you want to see the number of games in 170 days? Again, it's a tricky question because you can have all those games, which are a lot of games, three games a week, four games a week, sometimes five. Is it a lot of games internationally in terms of the different competitions? Like your experience is that 82 and 170 is dense. Yes, because the density of games during that range, it's super high. I don't think there is any other that I know team sport that they play between three and five games a week. Because it's not only about the games, it's about the traveling, the sleeping in foreign environments, the food. There are things around those 82 games. I don't know if 82 is too much or too low or if they could do more. I think it has to be a combination of, okay, we have 82 games. This is what it is. We can change the rules. How do we manage how many games together, like the back-to-backs, or when do we play at home, or the minutes on those games. The rosters are becoming bigger too because of the injuries. So how, how do we manage the rotations? Do we have to have players playing full quarters? I did that study two, three years ago, I believe. Like, who are the players playing full quarters? 
And if they get injuries or if they get very successful or they get MVPs, like why full quarters? It's a, like a tough guy situation. It's a bit more complex that giving you this answer is, okay, if 82 games is what we have in the schedule, can we have some guys playing 75, 76 games, which gives them some rest here and there as the teams are doing now, or managing the minutes or a combination of these things? It's hard to give a magic number. I think it has to be a combination of things. Lorena, I want to go back to the LeBron injury. You were talking about the minutes progressions. Given what happened with LeBron, he missed three games due to an ankle injury in early February. What would you have liked to see the minutes progressions for him be coming off of that ankle injury so as hopefully could have avoided the foot injury? Again, when you are outside the team, it's easy to just, oh, I would do this and that. But I think when you're inside the team, there are so many things that we don't know. I would just say, based it on the study that we've done, it seemed like a personal opinion, but I just wanted to reflect that we can study this. So what were some of the findings of your study that you're referring to? So an interesting one or surprising for me was that in the last five years, teams that missed 250 games because of injuries didn't reach conference finals. To me, that is surprising because we have kind of like a number, which I didn't expect. Then the minutes progression is not super clear because we don't have a lot of data with different type of minutes progressions. There's still no much data. So it's like a small conclusion that maybe we can dig more there. Where else? That the cost of the injuries keeps increasing, obviously, because the salary keeps increasing. That missing players that have higher salaries, when they miss games, it affects way more the performance of the team than when low salary players miss games. So you can have, just an example, I'm making it up, it's not real numbers, you can have three guys injured missing the whole season or four months of the season that are not keen the team, or you can have a big star missing five weeks, and those five weeks affects way more the winning percentage of the team than the other ones. Also, the type of injury and who gets injured have a weight on the winning percentage. What's some data that you don't have that you wish you had? Mm, it's a good one. Either because you can't measure it right now or because it's being measured, but it's not made available to you. Right now that I'm outside the NBA, I don't have practice data. When I was there, they were putting a great effort in having practice data to see the continue. Mm -hmm. I would love to have game data. Like I don't have game data now. The public data from the NBA on the NBA website is just total distance and average distance per minute. Speed, yeah. Yeah, it's like two or three metrics where last month that I was there, I was trying to figure out what is happening with change of directions, going more to the right, more to the left. A player that always goes to the left gets more injured or players that going always to the same side gets more injured in one limb or the other. Mixing physical data with skills data. I don't know if players shooting more threes get less injured that in the pain or with type of injuries. It seems that based on the data, guards tends to get more injured, like more volume of injuries in the guards. But yeah, what I would like to have is your know, practice data and game data that I don't have now. Like I can study things that we need to know. Obviously, if you ask me like the dream data, mm -hmm. physical assessments, 
strength assessments, mobility assessments, as you were saying. I was thinking the mental health data that you mentioned earlier, that's pretty much untrackable. That would be interesting to have is actually be able to chart people's mental health, mental health recovery, things like that. Yeah, the burnout, the stress, hormones. For me, it's a uh, beautiful discussion because what about immune system? What about muscle damage? What about your mental fatigue, as you were saying? Because performance is complex. The approach has to be complex. I think sometimes we go very simplistic. Should we have 72 games or can we go to 86? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because I think people don't realize is that in the NBA, they don't allow wearables in games. And so the data question is we don't have as much directional knowledge that we maybe could have. And I've always felt like the game is so start and stop now. Luka Doncic or James Harden or what have you is going a million miles an hour and then stopping on a dime and the defender is just flying into the audience in the first row. And that's just a move that is new. Yes, they were kind of doing that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but more so in the last like five years, we're seeing such deceleration, side-to-side movement. We're now seeing players, a huge weapon in their game is stepping back and taking a shot. I mean, yes, we had fadeaways with Michael Jordan in the 90s, but the direction of the exertion, the intensity of movements going from left and right and straight and behind, it just seems like this game is more 360 direction than it has ever. And I'd imagine the data, you would love to get that directional data, right? Yeah, I think I've heard that the NBA is working on having this type of technology like in baseball that tracks biomechanics without having any chip on your body. Mm -hmm. If they get to a good reliability and validity of that type of technology, that would be great. Because another thing is I don't think we need to push to have wearables during the game. I think we need to push to have data from the game. Mm. If we can do that without wearables or without disturbing the players, that would be great. And, you know, the game is evolving because like any other sport, when you get to a point where this is the maximum, you need to break that limit to getting better. So if you're a three-point shooter... You need to experiment and you need to get different types of shots so your opponent can read you or it's not ready for you. The game is going to keep evolving and the players are going to find ways to do things a bit different every time because they want to beat the guy that they have in front of, the team that they have in front. You can't keep doing the same if you want to get a different result. The game is going to keep evolving physically or technically or tactically. It's part of the sport. So Lorena, thank you so much for joining us on Illuminati. We always like having sports science experts, those who are in the trenches in the field, working with athletes on being as healthy and as high performing as possible. So I know it might be different to do media and interviews and stuff, but it's really important for the audience to hear that there are people trying to solve this problem, if it's a problem at all, is to try to get these athletes playing at the highest levels. And people are working on this. This isn't just a bunch of people on their couches saying, I am less. That's the answer. You know, there's actual, like you said, data and math and science that's going behind all of this. So yeah, definitely thank you for your time. No, absolutely. It was my pleasure. And as I said, I'm passionate about this sport and I like to keep digging on how can we do things better 
and help the guys better. Well, thank you so much for your time. And we'll have you on again soon. It won't be hopefully a LeBron injury. It'll be some amazing thing that happens in a game. No, and you'll just be like, that was amazing. Tom, don't lie. <laughs> Lorena, you're part of a small group of people we only call when things are going bad. Okay. <laughs> people are getting heard. You're the people that we call. It's a small, very exclusive group. <laughs> Okay, I hope that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Lorena. Thank you for having me, guys. What does that look like? You doing your own research? Are you doing studies yourself? Are you in the lab on a nightly basis? What are you doing? Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Doing your own research. I'm not a scientist. I'm not here to tell everyone that this is it. For me, it's just um, just giving everyone a chance to do their own research and find their own knowledge. Felt a little rusty, you guys. Haven't done this in quite a while. What haven't you done in quite a while? Beep, boop, boop, boop. We had a... Bing bong, but the beep boop boops we haven't had in quite a while on this program. The beep boops, the clickety clacks, all those good montage sound effects. Yes, yes. Looking back to the files, the encyclopedias, the references, the basketball references, it's been a while, fellas, since I had done my own research. Oh, it's back. And I want to get everyone filled in on something I've been working on because I'm tired of this Jokic stat patter, fake MVP discussion. I need to bring some actual research into this. Jokic is... But Tom, why are we going to give MVP to a guy who hasn't been to the finals? He always has bad postseasons. No other multiple-time MVP has been as unsuccessful in the playoffs as Nikola Jokic. How are we going to do that? Gosh, I mean... What's this impression? Mm, Jesus Christ. It's not an impression. It's a voice. It's a voice. Big difference. Kendrick Perkins. That was the impression, by the way. Kendrick Perkins. Yeah. Clearly. You're not the only one. Who else is there? I mean, well, I know Nick Wright is out there. Yep. He's been on that crusade against Jokic for years now. Mm-hmm. And there was the Kendrick Perkins take on first take. Conversations goes on in that locker room and players know where their stats are. Okay, so we had this energy for Russell Westbrook when we used to see Stephen Adams boxing out and he, and he used to fly in to get these rebounds and Stephen Ag- Adams could have jumped up and grabbed them. We don't keep that same energy for Jokic. And then in just perfect ESPN fashion, instead of having them both on the show, J.J. Redick on for his take, responding to Kendrick Perkins. Nikola Jokic does not care about stats, does not care about averaging a triple-double. Nikola Jokic, I hate to tell everyone, doesn't care about winning MVP. He cares about winning a championship. The idea that he's stat padding. Coach, this is how he described the game. This is how he described Nikola Jokic's game. He doesn't fight the game. Mm. He just makes the right play every time. He compared his basketball IQ to LeBron. This is not a guy that cares about stat padding, Perk. Let's not make up a narrative about a player that is just so unbased in reality. Perk. Love you, but no. Then, after another triple-double and a beatdown of the Rockets last Tuesday, Jokic was approached after the game. Nikola, what does 100 triple-doubles mean to you? I mean, when you start batting, it's easy, you know, so. <laughs> you heard that, right? You heard the stat padding stuff out there. Yes, of course. I mean, it's What's true. What's your reaction to it? It's true. Not to be outdone, Kendrick Perkins had more to say. First of all, it's a Jokic, a hit dog will holler. 
okay? And to JJ Reddick, if we're going to slap box, at least let me allow me to be on TV to throw my jabs and throw my uppercuts back at you as well. So when it comes down to stat padding all across the league, JJ, of all people, should know that this goes on in the locker room. And just like that, the gauntlet was thrown down. But before we get to JJ versus Kendrick, live on first take, Kendrick had to point out this interesting fact. When I look at JJ and I hear him talk because he's so big in analytics and he's he's a historian when it comes down to diving in deep and going back into history and talking about the evolution of the game, why didn't he never bring up this in particular subject? When it comes down to guys winning MVP since 1990, it's only three guys that won the MVP that wasn't top 10 in scoring. Do you know who those three guys were? Who were they? Steve Nash, Jokic, and uh, Dirk Nowinski. No. Dirk Nowinski. <laughs> what, do the, what do those guys have in common? I'll let you sit. I'll let it sit there and marinate. You think about it. But it's not just them, Maze. We got Draymond Green out here, too. Draymond Green on his podcast with Gilbert Arenas talking about a segment he saw on First Take. It's amazing how First Take is just the central hub of all of the takes. The only one that you can say started it all was the first take. So here it is. I feel like over the years, European players has not caught the same flat of winning a championship as U.S. players, and I don't understand that. So following that sentiment from Draymond Green, Kendrick Perkins doubled down. He said on a tweet, Never thought it would come a day when I totally agree, Draymond, but the day has come. He's 100% right when it comes down to European players being held to the same standard as U.S. players, especially when you're the back-to-back -back MVP. Don't mind me, though, and carry on. We had all the slap boxing and talking past each other, never in the same room or the same Zoom, but we did on Tuesday. Here's Stephen A. Smith, J.J. Reddick, Kendrick Perkins on the same show in three different places. It's 2023. This is how we do it now on First Take. Here's what they say. Stephen A., I mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to First Take, because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show, where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I, I you ju not, yes, you did. I yes, did you did. Not, I did yes, you did. That I is did exactly not, what you implied, Kendrick Perkins. That is exactly what you implied. Secondly, hold on, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up. We all know what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just now. Hold on. I stated it. It's the facts. 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 That's a great sounder right there. The facts. So the headline underneath them says, is Nikola Jokic the runaway MVP? And now what we've got is the self-fulfilling prophecy where he's such a runaway MVP that we have to argue against it every day, every week. We have to come up with new angles to say that he's not. And that's just the facts. But it's not even the facts. If you listen to Levitard's show last week, Amin and I were breaking down a little bit of this conversation, is the fact that Dirk Nowitzki and Steve Nash winning the MVP and Jokic without being a top 10 scorer 
I mean, Dirk Nowitzki was a top 10 scorer when he won MVP. If you go by both the points and the points per game, he was tied with T-Mac, I think that year and conveniently left out Magic Johnson and Bill Russell facts, right? Yeah. Maze, you're absolutely right. What we're doing here is reinventing a new debate. There are layers to this debate. And once the debate gets debunked, we need to go further. We need to go higher. Is he the MVP? Yes, he's the MVP. Is he the runaway MVP? Now we have to debate that. So I think there's this other thing that's happening here, which Draymond is talking about with the pressure of winning a championship isn't the same for European players as it is for us born players. And I wanted to do some research on this because I feel like what Kendrick Perkins has been doing, there was a tweet where he said, you know, he was amazing tonight, but let me tell you, he has zero excuses not to take this nuggets team to the finals, carry the hell on the perfect. I mean, is there a perfect take than to build up a player, build up a team just to tear them down? just to raise the expectations higher and say, Jokic is amazing. He's so great. But because of that greatness, if he doesn't go to the NBA finals, he's a fraud. He's a fraud. Exactly. It's one or the other great or fraud. Which one you let me know, but Tom, you did some digging, right? Because we all know that basketball is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And even the greatest of the greats had help. They had backup. The ones that achieve greatness of the team variety you were typically surrounded with great teammates. How many times have we talked about Bill Russell, how many Hall of Famers he played with? Right. Or Magic Johnson or Larry Bird. So it's not a coincidence that they would achieve such great team accolades and achievements because they played on great teams. So, Tom, what did you find? So have you noticed out there, Illumination, that not a single teammate of Nikola Jokic's career has ever been named to an all-star game while he was a Jokic teammate. He's never had an all-star teammate. An active all-star teammate. Because he did play with Paul Millsap, who was an (laughs) all-star once upon a time in his life. Of course, by the time he got to play with Jokic, he was 125 years old. Shout out to Rocky Marciano and Joe Lewis, right? He's never gone to the all-star game with a teammate in the same uniform, Yep, is what I'm trying to say. He's never had an all-NBA teammate. He's not even had an all-defensive team. And I'm glad you brought that up in our hit last week because I hadn't really considered that is that Jokic we know is one of the best offensive players of all time triple double 63% from the floor he's unstoppable in the post and he's impossible to guard in a double team all this stuff but he's never been paired with an all defensive team member ever in his career so no all-stars no all NBA no all defense so that got me wondering eight seasons Zero All-Stars, zero All-NBA, zero All-Defense. Has that ever happened with an MVP? Has that ever happened with a player of that caliber to win MVP? How many MVPs had this week of a supporting cast? Had this objective lack of star power? So, Amin Mays. What'd you find? Here's the research. I looked up every year of every MVP dating back to Larry Bird in 1984. You might say, why 1984? Well, Because before then, it gets into the ABA time where we're looking at careers of players like Julius Irving and Moses Malone who won MVP, but it's kind of apples and oranges before 84. See, Tom is part of the grand erasure of the ABA. Don't let them fool you. Not even when they are self-proclaimed Illuminati members, generals, etc. Even they might be complicit in a certain plot. But that's not the topic of the day right now. I mean, it sounds like Tom has his own history, just like Julius Randle has his own sign. 
science. There it is. No mistakes. No coincidences here. I left out the ABA stuff because it's noisy. So that leaves me, Maze. I mean, with 22 MVPs across 39 seasons, it turns out that MVPs tend to have a lot of help in their careers. Hey, wow. This is interesting. MVPs in their first eight seasons of their careers had teammates that, on average, totaled 12 and a half all-league appearances. So that's all-star, all-NBA, or all-defensive team. That's right. That works to about 1.5 per season. So 1.5 teammates per season, first eight seasons of an MVP's career. Some had way more than that. Some had way fewer. And I'm getting, I'm not saying 12 teammates. I'm saying 12 teammate appearances on those lists. Selections. The MVP with the most normal supporting cast was, interestingly enough, Tim Duncan. For the first eight seasons of his career, he had 12 teammate all-league selections. Four all-stars, I mean, guess we're going with David Robinson, three of those at the tail end of David Robinson's career when Tim Duncan came aboard. Mm-hmm. Then you had one from Manu Ginobili. He had three all-NBAs, I think from David Robinson, mm-hmm. and five all-defensive awards that's definitely David Robinson. Also, Bruce Bowen, who was mm. second in Depoy behind, I believe it was Ben Wallace that year. He was four times all defense next to Tim Duncan. The serial killer. And Tony Parker, not on this list because he actually made his first all-star in 2006, which was Tim Duncan's ninth season. So Tim Duncan's supporting cast, which we agree is great. If you look at the history of MVPs, that's actually the norm. Again, we're comparing to the first eight seasons of everybody's career. So you don't have the situation where you got obviously someone who's played 15 seasons or 20 seasons like Kobe is going to have way more than Nikola Jokic has had in his eight seasons. Right. You might be asking, what did Kobe Bryant have in the first eight seasons? And I will tell you it's 23, two times the normal supporting cast, 23. So then I looked up, is this out of the ordinary? What Jokic has, he has zero. In fact, of the 22 MVPs dating back to 1984, spanning the last four decades, We've never seen an MVP have this profound lack of star power next to him. It's funny because when we talked about this on Lebetard last week, Tom, as I was thinking of a comp, because I remember I asked you for a comp, in the back of my mind, I was like, it's kind of like Kevin Garnett. Because Kevin Garnett, that was the poster child of didn't have help, and that's why he needed to leave. What did Kevin Garnett rank at when you did your research? When I did my research, he was actually the best comp why you're good at this. I mean, the best comp for Jokic is Garnett only had two all-star teammates, Ooh. two all-star appearances. Let me name them. Wally Serbiak was one. Mr. Supposed wannabe fake all-star with the big miss. That's correct. And his first eight seasons. This is a toughie. It's not who you might think. Not Stefan Marbury because he was not an all-star in Minnesota. It's not Sam Cassell because Sam Cassell came after his eighth season. Googs. That's it. Gugliata, yeah. yeah. Nice job, Maze. Tommy G. Tom Gabistro. Tom Gugliata in 97. Wow. Wally Zerbiak in 02. <laughs> the Googs. That's... Some quality teammates right there for KG, man. But here's the thing with KG. We now realize the hate or the slander or the he can't win in the postseason when it matters most. Struggling to get out of the first round. Unwarranted. The dude goes and joins the Celtics and becomes anointed as this unbelievable winner. One of the best winners of all time. 
course he needed a supporting cast. Yet here we are with Nikola Jokic, and we're saying this guy with zero all-stars, zero stars next to him, he needs to get to the NBA Finals. And then speaking of which, here's KG talking about Jokic, the Joker, the other day on his podcast, KG Certified with Paul Pierce. If Joker does not win the MVP with with a triple-double, what I'm saying to you is, you saw, you saw, you saw, you see the abundance of talent in our league. Yeah, bro, is he the best? Bro, is he, he's three time, three time in MVP world, with Justin. Wait, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he can. Bro, he listen can. to me, bro. Hear me, hear what he I'm can. saying to you. This is what I'm asking you. Damn. Bro, is he hands down this better than everybody? He dominant. He's making everybody around him better. Yeah, yeah. and making their job easier. At the top, at the top, he's doing the most with the least. Right. I mean, I ain't saying I ain't discrediting right. these fact, other guys. Facts. Fact. They got some pieces. They all good, really good players, but they don't have a second all-star. All right, Tom, you gave me an all-time comp. Did you give me who number one was? Who's the number one most helped guy among all these 22 MVPs across 39 years? Well, it's not Kobe. He's number three with 23 selections. Not Larry Bird, who's at 26. Larry Bird had 26 all-star, all-NBA, all-defense teammates in his first eight seasons. Number one on the list, Magic Johnson. The Magic Man. Of course. Think about it. I mean, Magic had four titles in his first eight seasons. Larry had three and Kobe had three. You need stars on your team. This is so painfully obvious, but this has become the Jokic conversation. Until he goes to the finals or wins a title, he's illegitimate as a three-time MVP or even a two-time MVP. It seems like this is more of a commentary on your front office than it is your MVP. (laughs) The more we dig through this, right? Yeah. Out of curiosity, Tom, some people think the greatest player of all time is LeBron James. Some people think the greatest player of all time is Michael Jordan. How do they compare? LeBron James had six selections in his first eight seasons of his career. Six selections of his teammates, four in the All-Star, one All-NBA, and one All-Defense. Michael Jordan had just five. No. So actually, these two, the GOATs, six for LeBron teammates and five for Michael Jordan teammates. They are comparable again in yet another category. Although I'm sure all the Jordan people will say, see, LeBron had more help. (laughs) (laughs) So Jokic... Has no all-star teammates, no all-NBA teammates, no all-defense teammates, and his team is number one in the conference. And this is why he won MVP last year was because Jamal Murray was out. Michael Porter was out. They're still competent. And it reminds me of Russell Westbrook's MVP season when he did it all by himself. That was the whole narrative. That's what we like in this modern NBA is a superstar player with a crazy usage rate, doing everything by himself. That's the easiest path to get into the MVP conversation bar. Russ is on your little table here with 17 total all-star, all-NBA, all-defense teammates. But how many of those were on his team the year that he won MVP, Tom? Zero. Kevin Durant was gone. James Harden was gone. Serge Ibaka was gone. (laughs) And it's a regular season award, right? So, like, you're absolutely right. Is the idea that Russell Westbrook, he didn't have those all-star, all-NBA teammates. And then in the playoffs, they got waxed in the first round. And it was evidence that in the postseason, you need more help. You need stars to win in the postseason. You can't do it alone. But Jokic, 
he hasn't had that co-star that Russell Westbrook had with KD, with Serge. Davos Cephalosha is another one that they had in OKC that made an all-defensive team. And you can't point to anyone who's even that good defensively enough to win an all-defensive war next to Jokic. So even though Russ averaged, what, 37 points a game in that first round series loss to Houston, it feels like Jokic has a higher bar even still. He's been to the playoffs without a co-star four times, got out of the first round three times. When he's favored in a series, he's two and one. And when he's the underdog, he's two and three. So he has more underdog series wins compared to the busts that he's had. Jokic hasn't made the finals, but he also hasn't had the supporting cast that you expect him to get to the finals. And when he is favored, he tends to win. And when he's the underdog, he's pulled off a couple upsets. So like on the ledger, Jokic has had a pretty solid postseason career, but you need a star. Yeah, even LeBron and... Michael Jordan in the first eight seasons of their career, how many championships are we talking about there? LeBron, zero. Right. Didn't win till 2012. MJ won his first championship in 91. That was his seventh season. Maybe, maybe Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray are going to get some all-star, some all-NBA appearances in the future. Probably not all defense for those guys. I think that's a safe assumption. Well, he does play with one goat. It's Ish Smith. Jokic is playing with Ish Smith this year. So maybe that's a whole disqualifier in this whole discussion. Oh, man. We got a whole nother segment on how many all-star, all-NBA, and all-defensive teammates <laughs> Ish Smith just, has had in his career. <laughs> I'll start the bidding at 500. <laughs> and they all don't win one until they get teammates with Ish Smith. Pretty sure that checks out. But you're right. Michael needed how many seasons? Seven. He got blasted by the Boston Celtics two years in a row and all this stuff. But I'm like, every MVP, every star against that Celtics team is going to get crushed. LeBron James, the same way is that when you're pointing to LeBron's all-star teammates, he's had four all-star teammates through his first eight seasons. Big Z's at June Silgowskis. Mo Williams. It's Slim Pickens. Are those guys all-stars if they don't have LeBron on their team? Probably not. Probably not. There's this other piece of this, which is since 1984, in those 39 seasons, there are only 13 instances of a player winning an MVP and winning the title in the same season. 13 out of 39. That's one in three. More often than not, they fall short. And the same is basically true for reaching the NBA Finals. Since 1984, the MVP has reached the NBA Finals in 20 out of the 39 times, barely over 50%. But most of those came in the 20th century. Since 2001, the MVP has reached the Finals only eight times in 23 postseasons. And the MVP has missed the Finals in six straight. So you got Jokic for a couple years, Giannis for a couple years, Harden and Russ. This idea that Jokic, his MVP is only legitimate if he gets to the NBA Finals, and KG said it on his podcast, they should award the MVP after the first round. And if you don't make it out of the first round, you are disqualified from MVP, to which Paul Pierce was like, so you're going to take away Dirk Nowitzki's in 2007? Yeah, that's the Dirk rule. Poor, sad Dirk receiving his trophy after being eliminated. The last point here I'll point out. So many points. Kendrick Perkins in his first eight seasons in the league, he had 34. Jesus Christ. 34 all league awards. Talk about hanging out with good company. How about that? Do you want to guess how many in his career? So he had 34 in his first eight seasons in his career. How many seasons did he play? Well, then he went to the Thunder. So I'm going to go ahead and say 50. 14 years. So a little over half, he had 34. I'm going to say 50. It's a nice number. I like that. These are the facts. 
50. Oh, I hit it. There it is. Yeah. Well, I said it first, but it's okay. <laughs> no, I said it first. No, I said it first. I said, I'm going to say 50. And you said, yeah, that sounds like a nice number. Because I said it. Oh, well, I wasn't <laughs> listening. So that's proof. <laughs> Proof that I don't listen, but also that I authentically came up on 50. The Joker stands alone. Zero All Stars, zero All NBA, zero All Defense awards. The norm is 12 for the first eight seasons of the league. Jokic is the least supported MVP of the modern era. Those are the facts. It's the facts. So my buddy texted me on Sunday and he said, Giannis pulled a Ricky Davis. And I got to admit, I had so many possible options yeah. <laughs> for what that meant. Uh, so I'll ask you, Tom, when you think of someone pulling a Ricky Davis, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's probably something to do with Zach Harper. I don't know. Right. Something to get on Zach Harper's radar. That's Zach Harper's Ish Smith, right? Ricky Davis. Yep, sure is. That's his favorite player. Mm -hmm. He once went to a concert in Iowa because Ricky Davis went to Iowa. That's it. He went to a Wu-Tang concert in Iowa. So Giannis went to a concert in Iowa on Sunday. Yep. I mean, what comes to mind for you pulling a Ricky Davis? I think of him dunking on Steve Nash and saying, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Over and over again. Like his brain was broken by the athletic feat that he just committed. I was torn between saying LeBron was going to help him score. Oh, that's right. Or the failed between the legs dunk in the middle of a game. Mm. Yeah, Those are the first two things that came to mind. Forget buckets. But no, Tom, he was stat padding. Wow. Like Nikola Jokic. Giannis leisurely walked up to the backboard and ever so gently bounced the ball off for a rebound to get a triple double pulling a Ricky Davis and the league said, no, the league would not recognize it. Disqualified him from the triple double. I'm shocked at how many people were like, that's bogus. I'm like, what? There's actually people defending Giannis on this. That turns it into a judgment call. I'm like, hell yeah, it's a judgment call, man. That shit don't count. The sanctity of a triple-double. We were just six hours removed from the stat-padding argument, and here comes Giannis, so oblivious. And I had to, like, watch it a few times, the clip, because I didn't see what... Oh, oh, that was his layup? That was an attempt? He does have one thing on Ricky Davis here, though. He did it on his rim. Yeah, that's important. The rim he's supposed to shoot at. Ricky Davis... Uh-uh. It's really more of a Bobby Sura because Bobby Sura did this too mm. and had his triple-double rescinded. Ricky Davis, they never even counted it as a rebound. Bobby Sura, he had it, they called it, and then the next day the NBA said, not so fast. You sir about that? You sir about that? That's why? 